0: This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. If you walk along the beach on the Pacific Northwest coast, you might not notice some very special things. They're called clam gardens, and they've been sitting along the shore for thousands of years. Clam
1: gardens are these really special intertidal spaces where for thousands of years, indigenous people moved rocks to the low tide line to terrace the beach, just like you could terrace a hill to grow more grapes. You can terrace a beach to increase the area for clams to live.
0: That's Marco Hatch. He's an associate professor at Western Washington University in Environmental Science and a member of the Samish Indian Nation. He's also a clam garden expert. Now, clam gardens are an indigenous innovation that's essentially a rock wall along the shoreline. These structures allow the rising tides to bring sediment over the rock wall to create an ideal habitat for the clams. But then during low tide, it creates an exposed beach that's ideal for harvesting. Hatch says clams grown in gardens are two to four times the size of other clams. And the gardens are 150% to 300% more productive than wild beaches.
1: Clam gardens are really fascinating ecologically because the very rocks that define a clam garden, those basketball-sized rocks on the low tide line, creates this fascinating three-dimensional structure. All of these rocks piled up with little hidey holes for other things to live in them like big snails or limpets or chitons or red rock crab or seaweed, which are all also traditional foods. And so we often focus on the clam productivity, but that rock wall itself creates this really complex environment that lots of other um, native species and traditional foods also reside in.
0: Clam gardens are ancient. Examples approximately 3,500 years old are known from Washington State to coastal British Columbia, Canada, and all the way up to southeast Alaska. But Hatch says many more have yet to be discovered. And that's because for thousands of years, the gardens have been left untended.
1: I often talk about clam gardens maybe in the same way you might think of a raised garden bed in your backyard you don't just throw some seeds out there and come back 10 years later, right? You are constantly tending that bed, you're tilling the soil over, you're pulling out the big carrots so there's room for the little ones to grow. It's the same thing in clam gardens, that the soil needs to be tended, it needs to be turned over to wash away the fine grain sediments and the organic content to pull the big clams so the little ones have space to grow. And so the health of clam gardens has been degraded as has gone down since people haven't been out there tending those special places.
0: Well, that ancient knowledge could soon have a resurgence. The National Science Foundation is providing funding for a new organization called the Center on Braiding Indigenous Knowledges and Science. One of the center's projects is helping indigenous communities reconnect with the ancient practice of clam gardening. The center's mission is to, quote, ethically braid Western and indigenous science research education and practice related to the urgent and interconnected challenges of climate change, cultural places and food security, end quote. Hatch says he's grateful for the additional funding, but says the creation of the center is more meaningful to him than money.
1: What's more important is the acknowledgement of the role that traditional ecological knowledge has in thinking about how we manage our ecosystems today. What are our priorities? Whose voices matter? Who's at the table? What's the goal of ecological restoration and management? And how do we build true, authentic partnerships with indigenous communities that have been on this landscape since time immemorial?
0: And Hatch says his project on clam gardening is a perfect example, given its importance regarding climate change and food security, but also its cultural significance for indigenous communities.
1: For quite a while, one of the dominant narratives is that Indigenous people of the Northwest didn't have an impact on the landscape, that we were simple hunter-gatherers and that we lacked the tools and technology to, to meaningfully modify the environment. In the terrestrial realm, camas tending, cultural burning, these sorts of practices have been used as evidence to reverse that false narrative. In the marine environment, it's been a bit harder. And clam gardens offer this monumental structure that's undeniably human made, that shows undeniably that indigenous people have impacts on the environment and have modified the environment in a reciprocal fashion for thousands of years.
0: That was Marco Hatch. He's an associate professor at Western Washington University in environmental science and a member of the Samish Indian Nation. Well, joining us now are the co-leaders of the new NSF-funded center. Again, it's called the Center for Braided Indigenous Knowledges and Science. Bonnie Newsom is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Maine. She's also a member of the Penobscot Nation, and she joins us from Augusta, Maine. Professor Newsom, welcome to you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And also with us is John Woodruff. He's a professor of sediment and coastal dynamics in the Earth, Geographic, and Climate Science Department at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. And he joins us from Amherst, Massachusetts. Professor Woodruff, welcome to you.
2: Thank you, Megna. And just uh, uh, along with Bonnie and I, uh, the the other... Uh, Co-PIs of CBIX can't be here, but Sonia Atalay as well as Aura Marek Martinez.
0: Yeah, uh, well noted or duly duly noted, and also it's a little hard to manage a conversation with four or five people. <laughs> yeah. So, mm-hmm. so but I'm grateful to the both of you for coming on today. And Professor Newsom, actually, I wanted to start with you, um, yeah. and a question not specifically about the new center, which we'll talk about in detail. But going back to your Young life, because when we think about Western science, right, we think about um, one way of discovering uh, knowledge about the world or knowing more about the world. It's you know historically um, grounded in empiricism, in observable events, in replicable experiments, in the testing of hypotheses, etc. That's one you know science is one way of knowing the world. When you were young, uh, Professor Newsom, is that kind of your fir- was that your first uh, introduction to knowledge and understanding of how the world works, or did your introduction come in a different way?
3: Well, my introduction came in a different way. I um, did not grow up in uh, the indigenous community that I'm a part of, and uh, many of us as indigenous, uh, people's have been separated from our uh, communities in, through a variety of ways. Um, I I think understanding though the connections that people have with indigenous knowledge, um, uh, despite the fact you know regard regardless of where they grow up or are. Um, uh, uh, the experiences that they are exposed to, um, we bring uh, our connections to those communities to our lives in different ways, and um, and so, as you know, a young person growing up, my father was um, an avid canoeist and a hunter, and all of these things were rooted in uh, his indigenous identity. And so I came to some of my knowledge through him, but also through uh, connections with um, the Penobscot community.
0: Can you tell me more about those connections?
3: Sure. Um, My connections to the community uh, uh, are rooted in um, both people or elders that I had the opportunity to interact with, Throughout my lifetime, as well as uh, my my opportunity to work with um, Penobscot people through my role as tribal historic preservation officer, and in that role, I had a number of ways um, to connect to uh, people who um, retained indigenous knowledges, particularly um, around uh, place, Mm. because. Um, Indigenous connections to place are um, ways that we can begin to get at the importance of understanding um, uh, the longevity of knowledge in a particular place. And that's one of the things that SEVIX is about. Mm -hmm. It's um, place-based knowledges. And so as Historic Preservation Officer, I had uh, a wonderful opportunity to uh, understand and learn how uh, these places were important to Penobscot people.
0: Yeah. Um, well, uh, Professor Woodruff, I promise I'm going to get to you in just a second. But um, uh, I have another just quick background question for Professor Newsom. Um, given the fact that you are associate professor at the University of Maine, it means that you know by definition you've had to travel along the conventional paths in academia, right? And I and I wonder. Um, if at any time during that your academic journey, if you felt a tension between what uh, your academic life was and demanded of you versus the kind of knowledge and connections that you were just talking about, that you were very aware of as being present, you know, to this day in Indigenous communities, was there a gap there, Professor Newsom?
3: Absolutely, um, particularly undergraduate and, and my master's program. I had wonderful uh, guidance through my advisors and committee members um, during that time at UMaine. During I got my undergraduate, both undergraduate and masters at UMaine, and had some wonderful advisors. But I always felt as though I wanted to do archaeology for a different reason. And one of the reasons that I wanted to do archaeology was to give Indigenous peoples a voice in interpreting uh, uh, you know, their past. And so um, the, this notion of kind of a community-based archaeology or community-based science was not part of my early training. And um, th- so I felt like there was um, a, a bit of a gap, but on the flip side of that, I got some really wonderful. Uh, experiences and understanding Maine archaeology from the Western perspective. Well, Professor so, Newsom,
0: let me just uh, step in here briefly, mostly because we have to uh, take a quick break here. And Professor Woodruff, I haven't forgotten about you. I want to get your perspective on sort of how your academic journey also brought you to uh, becoming one of the uh, the co-leaders of the new Center for Braiding, Indigenous Knowledges, and Science, which we'll talk much more about when we come back. This is On point. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is on point. I'm Megna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about indigenous Knowledge and Western science, and how those two things are coming together in a major new project funded by the National Science Foundation. The project's called the Center for Braiding Indigenous Knowledges and Science. And we're speaking to the center's co leaders today. Bonnie Newsom is one of them, and John Woodruff is the other. And Professor Woodruff, I'm so grateful that you were listening along with me to uh, Professor Newsom describing sort of her journey to this moment. I'd like to hear similarly from you. When you were um, kind of early on in your studies of the earth sciences and climate sciences, how much, if at all, was the recognition of the potential uh, knowledge and information and observation that that can come from uh, indigenous practice? How much of that was part of what you learned?
2: Uh, yeah, I can say that I didn't—there was really sort of no discussion of indigenous knowledge when I was being trained. Um, I come—I I am not indigenous, and I come from a traditional academic training where uh, really the emphasis was addressing grand challenges and global problems— And there was uh, very little emphasis or training on how to interact with communities, how to do that in ethical ways. And um, I sort of have sort of had to learn the hard way along with sort of a lot of my colleagues, I think, on the issues that come with jumping into a community and trying to do science without really having that true relationship. And so when I started, I was sort of encouraged on my tenure track to do things internationally. I flew all over the world and jumped in and conducted a project uh, and thought I was making a meaningful change. But I sort of really noticed that it it, it really was not being applied at the community level. That I was doing, I was publishing in all the big journals and I was making a, you know, on on paper a big impact. Uh, and I got tenure. But when I really reflected on it, it was unclear to me how much my science really sort of. Got to the communities that I was, or and that place that I had been working in.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell me a little bit more then of, because uh, you mentioned obviously your work now uh, with the Center for Braiding Indigenous Knowledges and Science. Um, what brought you to uh, becoming one of the co leaders? So I am, I'm also a uh,
2: Co-director of uh, the Northeast Climate Adaptation Science Center, and that's a co-partnership between the United States Geological Survey and a consortium of universities in the region, uh, in this Northeast region. And the mission of that is really in in sort of recognition of the importance of conducting research in the place that you live. And
0: Professor Woodruff, we still course, there? sorry.
2: Yeah, sorry. I got my computer's getting disconnected, but <laughs> it's all right. as I was. Uh, um, uh, so the, the Northeast Climate Adaptation Science Center has really a mission and sort of, of conducting regional work and working with communities on sort of co-production. Um, and I was only able to sort of jump into that post-tenure when I could really start focusing on the region that I lived. But when conducting that work, uh, I sort of grew a, a value a respect and a value uh, for conducting sort of place-based and community-based research uh, and then we had sort of really a mandate of making these tribal partnerships and and in recognition that I had no training on how to do that and so Sonia Atalai who is the uh, lead PI for the Center for braiding indigenous knowledges and science I I was interacted with her quite a bit on some of these sort of uh, efforts to make authentic tribal partnerships, and through that, uh, those discussions, I sort of came to be invited to be a part of the center.
0: I see. Well, um, a little bit later in the show, I want to come back to uh, hearing more of both your thoughts on how Western science and in, indigenous knowledge um can be in harmony, but also they're the longstanding tension between the two. So we'll, we'll come back to that in a, in a second. But let's learn a lot more about what the new Center for Braiding Indigenous Knowledges and Science uh, aims to do, because as I mentioned at the very top of the show, there it was created via a $30 million uh, block of funding from the National Science Foundation, uh, and that funding is a part of the Science and Technology Center's Integrative Partnerships Program, from the NSF. Now, that program has been around since 1987, uh, and competition for uh, the funding has been, you know, very vigorous over the past several years. So we spoke with Rebecca uh, Farrell, who helps oversee the grant program for the National Science Foundation, and she said that every time NSF receives hundreds of proposals that have to go through four different levels of review before they're chosen, and she said this means that CBICS, the new center, winning this funding is truly a big deal. What we think is really exciting about it is that it represents this opportunity, really, to scale up existing efforts to connect indigenous knowledges with Western science in areas of societal relevance, in this case, climate change, food systems, and cultural heritage. So really, the goal of this particular center and and why we're interested in it is that it's going to advance knowledge about our natural and built environments and hopefully develop better solutions for adapting to changing environments at both local and global scales. So that's uh, Rebecca Farrell at uh, the National Science Foundation. Professor Newsom, can you tell me more about why these three areas in particular, um, about cultural heritage, climate change, and food systems, are the places where the center will focus most of its research and efforts on?
3: Yes, thank you for that question. I think we opted to focus on these areas because um, many of us uh, that are part of the kind of research team um, have experience in, in these areas, particularly um, uh, there are a number of indigenous archaeologists and environmental sciences. And so one of the things that we know as um, kind of indigenous Scholars and Indigenous communities recognizes that these and other systems, uh, social systems and environmental systems, are interconnected. And so when you think about um, climate change and food systems and heritage, uh, cultural spaces, those three things are intimately connected in terms of what um, uh, one, you know, they, they they feed off of each other. And so in um, in the natural world, and, and if we include humans in that, you can see that um, we have these three systems in place, um, but you can't address climate change without thinking about uh, food, mm-hmm. right? And you can't ag- uh, uh, think about food without looking at, um, food systems that have uh, been in place for millennia. And so that those kinds of connections between the three um, make for uh, a nice way to look at relationality in terms of our research, but also they're very pressing issues that Indigenous peoples and you know, people globally are, are facing right now. Yeah. And so I think that as we can begin to uh, kind of explore and um, uh, identify areas to do research on that are themed in these kinds of um, really important topics, we can begin to address, hopefully uh, create some solutions and think about how to live differently so that these three areas are, are healthy for us. Yeah.
0: So I'd love to talk more about some of the projects that the center has undertaken so far. We heard about the clam gardens earlier in the show. But Professor Woodruff, there's one that all of them actually seem quite fascinating to me. But, uh, so let's talk through some of them. First of all, uh, a project that works with um, Aboriginal partners to document and map land and environmental indicators of climate change can you tell me more about that one um sure well I,
2: I so i'm i'm always a bit nervous about talking to these particular projects because i think that they really are rooted in the region and we have specialists that are particularly focused on these uh specific projects and so they the um the thing that i think is that that i'm most qualified to talk about is sort of the importance of these sort of place and community-based projects and that the center's goal of taking those projects, all sort of uh, that that have a sort of exciting, uh, that are really exciting in and of themselves, but sort of what I'm sort of involved in and, and it are the discussions of how we scale these projects up. So in and of themselves, they're kind of a local place-based project, but what CBICS, or the Center for Braiding Indigenous Knowledge and Science is involved in, is really sort of trying to do a different type of science that's branching up and scaling these individual projects up and what can be learned when we start combining these different projects and approaches. Mm. Um, and so. We have these thematic working groups that really are trying to connect, and we have these regional centers where they really are the experts on the particular uh, research that's being done in that particular location. But then we have these thematic working groups that are trying to take those place-based and community-based projects and scale them up on sort yeah. of lessons learned on on relationality, how do you data sovereignty and how do you address sort of the sharing of that data, field work practices and education and uh, sort of the, the interactions with policy and government, and then the communication of knowledge mobilization and sort of how you can communicate this Uh, the various methods that this that this research can be commuted can be communicated communicated to the at the local level, but also the regional and national and international.
0: Okay, well, then let me ask kind of the uh, uh, question in a similar vein, but but uh, differently to Professor Newsom, because I mean, whether it's this specific project of working with indigenous partners to document uh, environmental indicators of climate change or, you know, Others uh, monitoring salmon populations in Alaska, a huge, huge issue actually entire uh, along the entire Pacific Northwest. But uh, the implication is that there is uh, some deeper or more useful knowledge, data and information that can emerge from the partnerships with uh, indigenous peoples than is, has been typically available uh, to researchers using Western science exclusively, right? Like I'm thinking of like what right. what could be gained by partnering with indigenous peoples to map land, looking for indicators of climate change that ha- that's not accessible from, you know, uh, uh, geosats that are looking down and measuring you know, hot spots in the summer over the course of 20 years. Do you see what I'm getting at, Professor Newsom? Right.
3: I think I do. Um, so Indigenous peoples uh, around the world have long-lasting relationships to place, and many of um, the knowledges that are uh, generated over millennia are based and rooted in people's experiences um, in particular places. And so if there are oral narratives or um, other kinds of uh, practices that help to retain knowledge of change in the landscape over time, then those kinds of uh, knowledges can be uh, brought to bear on Western science questions, typically what we would think of Western science questions, right, Partic- around climate change and, you know, environmental um, uh, uh, uh environmental uh i don't know what the word is um it's
0: okay go, sorry but, go on go um,
3: on. but anyway um just knowing that people have um been engaged with this particular these particular places for millennia they've developed certain practices and understandings and have witnessed different things and those uh, knowledges have been trans um transferred Across generations, and so um, I, I think as uh, we bring in Western science into um, our spheres of knowledge as Indigenous peoples, we can begin to not only share that information in a in an ethical and you know trusting way with our partners, mm-hmm. but we can also bring Western science to uh, help improve our communities. And so um, I think that uh, connection between the two, uh, really an acknowledgement that people, Indigenous peoples, do have experience with um, things that may be of interest to a broader world. um, I think having those connections and making those connections um, more deliberately
0: Will change how science is done. Yeah. So, so what you just said, I think, is very powerful, right? Because, again, just sticking, I'm just going to throw out an example. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, we can we can measure uh, changes in, let's say, forest cover uh, or yeah. the or the health of forests due to climate change. Right. That's a major area of research right now. But what you're mm-hmm. saying is that then um, imbuing that also. Uh, and just as importantly, with things like the oral narratives from from the people who have been living on that land uh, or stewarding that land for thousands of years gives us um, more quantitative and also qualitative data to understand the impacts of what you know, like what it means that uh, forest Forests are rapidly changing, so that that kind that's of right. gives the, gives the research a greater um, greater depth than just saying, well, there's been this percentage of change in you know chestnut trees in the Pacific North, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, in the in the Northeast uh, over a hundred years, right?
3: Right, that's correct. And I think one of the things that Western science can benefit from uh, in terms of working with kind of indigenous communities is. Um, understanding the different philosophies that shape that knowledge. So, um, for example, you know, a particular community may feel uh, a certain connection to a certain plant or or uh, animal species. And I, what comes to mind for me is uh, the Indigenous peoples of um, uh, the Northeast in Maine, where uh, they are particularly connected to the brown ash tree and have used brown ash for um, millennia and making baskets. And so they have a very intimate knowledge of, of uh, the life cycle of those trees and changes that occur in those um, brown ash stands are um, quite uh, visible. Yeah. So I think bringing that to bear in a in a relationship with Western
0: science is important, right? And so when we come back, we're also going to talk about something that both of you mentioned about the ethics of uh, of the science and its uh, interaction with indigenous knowledge, um, and also making the data and discoveries that the center will do available to indigenous communities as well. So there's a lot more to cover when we come back. This is on point. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and before we return to today's conversation, I just want to let everyone know that, of course, we are following the biggest news in the world right now, Hamas's attack on Israel and uh, Israel's response. And we're working on a show for later this week that will really help us make sense of the global implications of what has happened over the past several days in Israel. So if you have any questions about that, questions that you want answered about those global implications, call us and leave a voicemail at 617 353 zero six eight three. That's six one seven three five three zero six eight three. That's one of the shows we're working on for later this week. Another we're gonna be talking about math. It's a very intense week here at On Point, but but stick with us because for Decades, national test scores have shown that uh, American students are are not doing as well in math as their international counterparts. Well, the state of California has recently made some major changes to uh, how they're going to teach math in public schools. They've adopted a new thing called the California Math Framework. It's a thousand pages long uh, and it's got a lot of stuff in it that actually many mathematicians say will not work. So, Californians in particular, if you're a parent, uh, a mathematician, or a teacher, we want to hear from you. What is math like where it's taught in your classrooms? Is there a better way to teach it? We want to hear your stories about um, mathematical education. You can also call our number, 617 353 0683, to share your stories about that. Or better yet, use our on point Vox Pop app. If you don't already have it, Go to wherever you get your apps and look for On Point Vox Pop. So, math education in California and uh, obviously Israel and Hamas. Two big stories we're working on for the rest of this week that we would love your input on. Today, we are talking about a remarkable new center called the Center for Braiding Indigenous Knowledges and Science, and we're speaking with its co-leaders, Bonnie Newsom, who's an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Maine, also a citizen of the Penobscot Nation, and John Woodruff, professor of sediment and coastal dynamics in the Earth, Geographic, and Climate Science Department at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. Um, so... I want to return to something, um, John and Bonnie, that we began the show with, and that is how Western science has historically looked upon indigenous sources of knowledge, because I am a great, great lover of science. People who listen to this show regularly absolutely know that. But I'm also fully aware that when—and I keep saying Western science for a reason, right? Because when it comes to how Western science views indigenous knowledge— it's over the centuries, it's primarily been seen through you know, two different perspectives. One is just pure racism because Western science when it came to uh, you know the Americas was done through a colonial means. So why would colonists or uh, uh, enlightenment era scientists believe they should take uh, indigenous knowledge seriously? That was just flat out racism. And second of all, the sense that how indigenous cultures, gather knowledge, steward it, interpret it wasn't worthy of being taken seriously because it's not the same as empirical science in terms of measurement, experiment, etc. I don't think that that uh, tension is gone entirely. The center might be kind of a first foray into, into um, pushing that back, but Professor Newsom There's a long setup to a simple question to you, which is, um, you know, how much do you think that that attitude uh, from Western science still exists when it comes to examining the import of indigenous knowledge?
3: Well, I think, you know, anything, any new way of thinking is always met with challenges. And this is, Indigenous knowledge isn't a new way of thinking, but it's certainly um, an unfamiliar territory for many Western sciences uh, scientists. And um, I think part of uh, the reluctance to include things like oral narratives, as part of the science exploration or part of a research topic exploration um, is uh, um, not embraced for a couple reasons. One is that, um, you know, perhaps access to those oral narratives is not readily available. And so Western science is, uh, scientists may not be aware of you know, what kinds of information rests within those oral narratives that might be helpful um, to their exploration. Um, and also, I think there's been a bit of uh, distrust that has been built up uh, around uh, for Indigenous peoples to feel comfortable in sharing knowledge in a way that um, uh, uh, may, may benefit you know, humanity as a whole. Well, I think we
0: have. um, uh, Bonnie, Bonnie, can I just interrupt here? Because I think you're being uh, you're being um, uh, I I appreciate your judiciousness right now. So I'm just going to come out and say things a little bit more strongly. And You tell me if I'm wrong. Right. Because when you're talking about the distrust, I mean, that distrust is born of, uh, you know, centuries of. Uh, western extraction of indigenous knowledge when it's convenient to uh let's say you know uh, colonizers or um other forms of western business right and so of course there's this right. distrust that, uh, uh, we yes. should put it frankly
3: yes there is there's um yes there is a huge distrust of how our knowledge and, and experiences are going to be used and so i think that's one of One of the beauties about the Center for Braiding Indigenous Knowledge is many of these relationships that exist within the regional hubs and the working groups between Western scientists and Indigenous communities are um, already established, and there are Indigenous scholars um, who are now in the fold, right, to be able to uh, um, understand some of that... uh, um, uh, trauma that has occurred mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. in terms of indigenous peoples sharing knowledge and then having it being kind of co-opted for, for reasons that they did not
0: yeah. choose. So, Professor Woodruff, let me kind of um, look at the other side of the coin on, on this one because uh, I think that, that there are many people listening, many people in the scientific uh, community or communities who would say, uh, well, there's a reason why, uh, you know, if we're going to use... Crass terms. Well, I will today. That indigenous knowledge hasn't been uh, taken that seriously. There, you know, they might say there's legitimate reasons for that, and that is, you know, uh, empirical Western science um, advances confidently in its discoveries about the world because it, you know, really sticks to rules about observations have to be measurable, they have to be t- the hypotheses have to be testable. You have to be able to replicate it, and then you know, once those. Uh, standards are met, the new knowledge can actually say, well, yeah, this needs to be part of science. Whereas Western scientists may not look at the means by which indigenous communities um, accrete their knowledge as meeting those same standards. Um, Is that not a legitimate viewpoint that might make some people say, well, you know, we're not sure what there is to be gained from the work of of a center like the new one?
2: Um, I, I guess I would say that, you know, that that the way that you frame that is is sort of definitely correct in the way that science has been approached previously. But I also would point to that most of my colleagues see that science is changing and a recognition of the importance of getting of of getting into the community and working with society more. And I think that scientists are recognizing that there is a growing gap between academia and society, that uh, there is less appreciation for what we do and the value that we bring. And I think that is in part because although the approaches that you described have have brought many unbelievable advances. and it's and we're not this center is not throwing out that type of approach. What it is trying to do is braid an, an, a, another approach that is more sort of framed and is based on community in place versus the traditional side that I was trained on is really sort of more global. And that if you address those you know, pure science questions that eventually uh, there will be societal benefit. But that's a real slow burn. And it takes decades oftentimes for society to see how those might really be relevant uh, and we need now to really address problems that are facing society today and we mm. need to move much faster. Mm. And I think the time is now for a center like this that really includes this this other style of science. And I would, I would frame it as that every community has something to bring to the table on this topic. I mean, I think that the, the thought that a scientist can kind of jump into any community and really understand the environment as well as sort of uh, a community that's been established there for decades or centuries uh, is, you know, th- there is kind of a bit false and what better way to start doing this type of approach with.
0: Well, it looks like uh, professor Woodruff, we're going to get you back when your computer decides to reconnect with us. But, um, uh, excuse me for my froggy voice as well, Professor Newsom, maybe hopefully the center can mm-hmm. help explain why my allergy season seems to be getting longer and longer every year. but um just to, that's t- not a question for me for <laughs> sure <laughs> um, well, so just uh, just to pursue this a little bit further, and then I want to refocus on the um, on what indigenous communities hope to gain from partnerships like like the one at the center has um we, uh, I read this recent article from uh, another professor of archaeology, George Nicholas. He's at Simon Fraser University, and we, we reached out to him, but unfortunately, he couldn't join us today. But he sounded a note of caution still, nevertheless, because he said um, to our producer, Paige, he said that he still sees a double standard when it comes to uh, cooperation or cooperative efforts between um, science and indigenous knowledge, because... Here's what he wrote to us. He said, the issue I see is that when it is aligned with their expectation and results, indigenous knowledge is seen as a valuable source of information. So when it's aligned with science's expectations and results. But when it's at odds with scientific results, it's still seen as questionable, ignoring the value of that discrepancy as an avenue for unanticipated discoveries. What do you think of that, Professor Newsom?
3: I would agree with um, Dr. Nicholas. I think you know it's uh, we. I think we as Indigenous peoples see um, science cherry-picking some of what Indigenous peoples have to offer, and as long as it fits um, within the the goals of you know whatever scientific study is, is being undertaken um, it it uh, it is okay mm. and then but when it doesn't when it challenges uh, some of what um, the science is saying um, then oftentimes it does get dismissed as um, something that is not as credible as kind of a Western science approach
0: right right well I think we have professor Woodruff back with us um, and uh, Professor, what I I'm, I want to spend the last few minutes of the show uh, talking about another major goal of the Center for Braiding Indigenous Knowledges and in Science, and both of you have kind of mentioned it um, a little bit in passing, and that is to support the work of indigenous scholars and to make accessible the data that comes from the res- the research that the center is undertaking make that accessible to accessible excuse me to in, uh, indigenous communities themselves and that's part of sort of the ethical approach that it seems like the center is taking can you talk about that for a minute
2: Sure, and yeah, I only have a minute before I get disconnected. It seems like, um, so I think that there is the this center is really designed with sort of how data is is handled at its roots, and so that that and and how um, that data is shared more broadly, so how how it is shared outwards and then how it is shared with the community. And those discussions are happening at the onset of the project. And so I think that that's really an important aspect of this. And we have leaders in the field uh, that are sort of providing sort of the structure and the scaffolding of how do you work with indigenous communities and how do you come up with an agreement at the start on how on on what data how data is used, how it is respected, um how it is labeled, so that we know exactly how it should be um, who it should be shared with and who it shouldn't be shared with. And there are, you know, we have people that are sort of really, you know, experts in the field. And so I'm a little hesitant to jump too much into it other than to say that I think that, that in this day and age, I think people can really appreciate how in this ether where data is really being shared and going and being consolidated and then sort of uh, um, not really given any sort of uh, attachment to um, or or
0: It looks like Professor Woodruff was correct about – there must be a one-minute right. timer. <laughs> I, <all. laughs> I don't know what's going on here, but I,
2: I was just running I, – I would just say that I think that most people on the line can appreciate that we need to do a better job of really thinking about how data is shared, what data should be shared and what shouldn't, uh, how credit is given, and all those things thread – uh, what better people to lead the charge on this than indigenous communities that really have a, a, a strong understanding of how data and information can be misused and the best path forward on on sharing it correctly?
0: Yeah, and the I also note that um, regarding climate, especially, it's quite it's quite interesting to know that the centers. Uh, is uh, focusing on a lot of regional projects rather than just trying to explain like global climate change because the impacts, of course, are being seen very acutely on the regional level. So I look forward to many more years of uh, of research and data and discoveries coming out of the center. And I thank you both for joining us today. Bonnie Newsom, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Maine and a citizen of the Penobscot Nation. Professor Newsom, thank you so much pleasure to be here. And John Woodruff, Professor of Sediment and Coastal Dynamics in the Earth Geographic and Climate Science Department at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Professor Woodruff, thank you as well. Thank you, Meghna. We really appreciate you covering this. And by the way, for more information on the Center for Braiding Indigenous Knowledges and Science, go to our website onpointradio.org. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.